Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. It's been a while since we have explored the Gospel of John together. Uh, We've taken some time away from the book, specifically for the season of Advent, and then also for the majority of the month of January, we just kind of um, preached through the lectionary a little bit. We had some guest speakers come in and out. Uh, But tonight, we're going to get back into the Gospel of John. And if it helps you to understand where we are, the majority of the Gospel of John is devoted to what scholars have called the Book of Signs. This is Jesus engaging in teaching ministry, doing signs, wonders. He's doing things that are helping people to know who he is. There's a turn at the end of chapter 12, beginning in chapter 13, where we move away from Jesus demonstrating to the people who he is, how he's linked to the Father, and then he begins to do some intentional teaching with his closest crew of disciples. Uh, In chapter 13, we see these folks together in what some people have called the upper room discourse. This is when Jesus takes on the role of a servant and washes the feet of his disciples. This is when Jesus predicts Judas's betrayal of him. This is when Jesus also predicts the denial of Peter. And we're moving into uh, the next three chapters or so of some intentional teaching of Jesus where he's letting people know what's about to unfold, how they should respond, what they can expect to happen, and what are, in some senses, the benefits of all of these events that will unfold, namely, his death and his resurrection. So if you need to uh, imagine the scene, Judas has left. Peter has just been told that he will deny Jesus when Everything is on the line. And Jesus is beginning to speak to his friends about what is about to happen. And this brings us into the beginning of chapter 14. Now, scholars also have a real struggle with where to divide chapters uh, from the end of 13 through the end of chapter 17. There's a bunch of different teachings that are taking place, and folks are attempting to figure out how and where to divide those things. So if we wanted to, we could have gone back to the last few verses of chapter 13, but I really want us to to focus in on chapter 14, and I'm going to give you a lot more context and we're actually going to discuss this evening. Uh, In my preparation, what I thought was one sermon is actually going to become two sermons. So tonight we're going to look at a pretty familiar passage. And if your toes are sticking too far out from under your seat, I'm probably going to step on them 
a good bit this evening. Not literally, Lorenzo. I saw you looking around, saying, making sure that everything was going to be okay. Uh, but some of the ideas and the conclusions that maybe you've reached, the way that you've heard this passage taught in the past, I think I'm going to step on some, some toes here a bit. So this is John chapter 14, beginning in verse one. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Maybe you have in your mind, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. Uh, however you want to deal with that, we'll come back to it. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. The word of God for the people of God. God. So maybe some of the, the words that stuck out to you as familiar words, and maybe if you have supersonic hearing and you were able to, to listen to that audio adrenaline song that I had coming through the speakers a little bit about my father's house, you, you, might, you might come to these passages or these verses here and think that they represent some of your upbringing or things that you hold to dearly. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places or many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. This is, is a classic passage that we usually hear uh, at funerals. <laughs> this is a passage that brings people hope. And some of these phrases that kind of leap off the page a little bit are things that we maybe have heard in the past and things that we think we have an understanding about, the things about Jesus going to his father's house. And in his father's house, there's many rooms and those rooms are available for us and for whoever believes in Jesus and that Jesus is going to prepare these places for us and that he will come again. We have some of these ideas about what that looks like and what we are envisioning for the future. And maybe it, it seems so, like, like this. 
we have these end of life sort of uh, examples. This is from Pinterest. If you ever want a, a good theological representation of any biblical text, go to Pinterest and just figure out what's going on here. But we have these people kind of floating off into what can ostensibly be the mansions of God, the houses that, that God has, and the rooms that are available for us, or as some people might even have heard, the mansions that are available for us too when we die and at some point go into the heavens where we will live and the streets will be paved with gold. And for some of you, you've thought that this is gonna be like an ongoing eternal worship service and the band will be playing and you'll be moved. And others of us think, man, I hope there's baseball there. <laughs> because I don't know if I could just sing for that amount of time, and you begin to construct what heaven might look like. It wasn't a couple hours ago that I saw someone on Facebook saying, this is a, my own preview of heaven, and it happened to be a worship service, but we have these ideas about what this might look like, and at times we, we link John chapter 14 to our understanding of what the future holds for us. Now, I don't wanna pop that bubble for you, but some scholars at least want us to pump the brakes, back up slowly a little bit from some of the Sunday school things that we have heard, dig our hands into the dirt of the first century Jewish culture a bit, and start doing some work. You can see I'm hiding from you now because this is where the toes might inevitably be stepped upon. Raymond Brown says these two verses, namely the ones about Jesus going and preparing a place, they are extraordinarily difficult. Where's the Father's house? You could even back up and say, what is the Father's house? What is he talking about? And what are these rooms or these mansions or these things that we're ostensibly supposed to be flying off into, at least in our mind's eye, what does that look like? Where are they? What are the rooms that we will inhabit? Who's going there if anybody is going anywhere in this passage? This is usually one of these texts where it's like you start drawing really hard lines in the sand about who's going to these places and who is not. When is all of this happening? Now, there, there's some of the stuff that we'll pick up tonight, but this is really what I wanna focus in on this evening, this question of when is this happening? And in order for us to unpack that, we've gotta get a little bit nerdy. Can we do that this evening? You ready for that? I've even changed the background color of the slide to let you know this is nerd stuff. And even if the background wasn't changed, you'd look at words that you may or may not be able to read out loud and say, what is this guy talking about? But what we have here in the scholarly world is a discussion between if Jesus is talking about a future eschatology or if Jesus is talking about a realized eschatology. Eschatology, if you need some sort of working definition, is basically... Um, the last things or uh, something that you can expect at the end. A lot of times people use this term eschatology and they begin doing stuff that we may have seen Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins doing in the Left Behind series. And we think about the rapture and we think about the tribulation and we think about the timing of Jesus's ultimate return and what will take place, the, the apocalypse and the battles that will, that will happen. But really what eschatology is referring to is not just all that end, end of uh, the age sort of stuff, but more focused perhaps is the purposes of which Jesus is doing the work of God 
on earth, whether those purposes are realized in the future or if they're happening here and now. And as people are reading John chapter 14, we have these distinct different understandings of uh, a future goal way off somewhere down the line when Jesus will return climactically and put the world to rights, fix everything that's happening, and then allow his people to occupy these mansions in the sky, if you will, or if Jesus's work, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, if that matters for us right here and right now. Well, one uh, early church father named Irenaeus, he's reading John 14, 2, according to Craig Keener, as a promise of future mansions. Irenaeus even goes so far to say that those who had performed the greatest works would have the largest mansions. Is that not incentive for you? (laughs) Is that going to influence how you treat the people on your way home and how you may or may not have road rage leaving the parking lot and getting back because you're thinking, maybe this will help me get that mansion in the sky. He goes on to say, those who produced fruit 100-fold would live in the heavens. Those who produced 60-fold, they would live in paradise. And those who produced 30-fold in the city, it doesn't say what happens to the people that produce 10-fold or 5-fold or 1-fold that just barely get in by the skin of their teeth. They might have a hut like somewhere in, in, in the periphery or they might be serving in the food truck where you know the people with the mansions and the 100-fold go and they get the tacos from the person who's working the the fryer. (laughs) That is not what the early church fathers are talking about, but that's just for you, you know. You might not get that everywhere. Another scholar, Herman Ritterboss, he's uh, in the 20th century, early, early to mid 20th century, he suggests that scholars find realized eschatology, the stuff that Jesus is doing, if it has to do with here and now, he says that scholars will find realized eschatology in this passage only because they deny future eschatology. In other words, he's saying realized eschatology is a bunch of junk. It's a sham. This passage has nothing to do with here and now. In fact, it has nothing to do with the disciples in that moment. It's all about the future, when Jesus would return, when he would come again and make everything right and okay. Ritterboss says this is not not about now or in his thinking then. It's about the future. Jesus will show up and will make everything right and that's what he's talking about here. Now, just to throw a wrench into your system. Are you with me up to this, up to this point? We're thinking about John 14 and if it's about the, the distant future or if it has anything to do with here and now, okay? Raymond Brown again says, if the reference is thought to be... Uh, to a coming at the end of time, which we now know to have been far from imminent. If Jesus is saying, I'm gonna wrap this thing up pretty quick to his disciples, and now that we know that there's been 2,000 years from his death and his resurrection until now, if there hasn't been an imminent return, how was this news in John 14 going to console any of his disciples? If he says, don't be troubled, don't be worried. Don't be worried about me and what's gonna happen to me, but also don't be worried about yourselves and what you might face because, cool news, you guys will probably die, but don't worry because you'll fly off into the sky and you'll get a mansion at some point. That's good news, right? It's funny because 
This is how we sell the gospel sometimes to people. Your life's a train wreck. Everything that you know is falling apart. But cool news, after you die, you'll be fine. I would hope that you might want a little bit more from me if that's the good news that I'm pitching to you here in this moment. But Raymond Brown is saying like, wait a second, wait, wait a second, wait, wait. I know that we have the Pinterest pictures that we're working with and the mansions and stuff, but is Jesus just talking about that or is he giving his disciples hope right now? And that is, that's how we're framing this entire discussion. Other scholars would also say that if you look at the immediate context of the passage, if you spend any amount of time here at TRP, that shouldn't be a weird phrase for you. For us to understand what Jesus is talking about in John 14, we have to understand what Jesus is talking about in this larger farewell discourse. You can't just take a couple verses, pop them out, think, heaven, cool, I hope there's baseball there, and not do any of the hard work with understanding what Jesus is actually talking about. So tonight, that's what we're going to do. But before we get into that, I wanna make a couple of qualifiers, qualifiers that you might not hear anywhere else. Woo! And that sets us apart. Because this guy right here is not afraid to say, I have no idea, okay? About the future, no one knows. It doesn't mean we don't have hope. It doesn't mean that we can't stand firm. But I do think it's good to hear the words of Rob Bell, and that's gonna put us into a category right there for, uh, for the readers who have ears, let them hear, who says we must be at least a bit agnostic about what happens to us after we die because we haven't died yet. <laughs> and when we do, we don't, asterisk, usually, come back and tell everyone what it will be like. Perhaps you've read some of the books. Perhaps you know. Congratulations. But he would say, about the future, no one really knows. It doesn't mean that we don't do the work. It doesn't mean that we don't try to discern and understand. But also, we must be a bit agnostic about what is going to happen and understand this does not mean that we are just flying around wherever the wind blows willy-nilly. Anytime you can use the phrase willy-nilly, it's a good day. I would challenge you, this is Sunday, so you have an entire week. Work that in. Elizabeth, if you can get into an article, even better. Willy-nilly. No one knows what's, what's going to happen with certainty, but we have beliefs, and we can even hold those beliefs with some amount of gusto is the best word that's coming to me at this point. So let's just workshop that. We'll come back to it. Also, about John, no one really knows either. Scholars d debate and discuss if Jesus is talking about a future eschatology, which remember, that's out there somewhere when you die, when Jesus comes back, which he hasn't over the last 2,000 years. It's going to happen, though, somewhere in the future, or if what Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, if that has any real benefits to here and now, scholars debate this, and I'm not going to pretend to know more than they do. So I'm allowing myself to say that no one really knows, and I'm joining that elite category of people, and so are you. 
But we can, again, attempt to discern what is going on in this passage, and really the question comes down to future eschatology versus realized eschatology. You guys familiar uh, with these terms at this point? You understand what's going on? What you've heard, I imagine, is this idea of future eschatology. What you've heard, I imagine, are those Pinterest pictures of, of you flying off into the heavens, these mansions in the sky that you will one day inhabit, that Jesus is preparing that place for you now so that when you die and when he returns, then you will go there, okay? That's what you've heard. What I would like to argue this evening, and again, we're, we're tentative here, I think there's something to be gained from reading this passage where Jesus says, listen guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In fact, in my father's house, there's many rooms and it's available for you. And if I wasn't going there, then why would I tell you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? But I, I am, that's, that's what's happening here. And you will be with me. I think there's something to gain when we think about that passage rooted in a message of hope for his disciples in the very near future, not just way down the line, at least 2,000 years plus when Jesus was on earth doing ministry after he is crucified and risen. Does that make sense? We're gonna try to unpack some of this. So if we just go back to the very beginning, and we're really only looking at the first four verses tonight, there's another huge conversation that we need to have next week about Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's next week, okay? Let that be the tease for you, okay? Because that one has some issues with it too for a thoughtful crowd wondering, what does that mean about people who aren't following Jesus? Are they in or are they not in? That's next week. It's the tease, okay? This is the first four verses where we're talking about my father's house and the mansions and all this good stuff. So Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. This is the third time he's used this verb in John, the first couple of times, uh, third or fourth, check me on that. I don't know how you would, Google it maybe. <laughs> he's troubled when Lazarus dies and when he sees Mary, and when he sees Mary crying, it says that he is moved, he's disturbed, he is emotionally a wreck at the, the feelings that he is having. We have a savior who emotes, okay? That's good news for me. I don't always emote, but it's nice to know that Jesus is able to do that. He, um, he says earlier in chapter 13 as well that his heart is troubled, that he is, uh, he's, he's angsty, he's anxious about what is going to unfold for him, namely the fact that he is about to die. Jesus is upset with that. When you turn Jesus into this semi-human, semi-divine being who just floats around the earth with no real cares in the world, you miss Jesus. He is a wreck because of what is about to unfold in his own life. And now he's saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. He's talking to his best, his closest friends. Guys, listen, this is gonna get tough for you here in a moment, and don't let your hearts be troubled. I love what Gail R. O'Day says about this. She says, it's important that the opening imperative not be excessively sentimentalized. 
Jesus does not speak to the disciples' personal sadness at his death, but instead he exhorts them to stand firm in the face of his departure when the events may look to them as if evil and death are having their way. Understand that when Jesus dies for his friends, they think, game over. We lost. Our horse did not win. We were wrong about everything. The last three years of following this crazy Jewish rabbi around has been worthless because he's dead and our Messiah does not die. They had no categories for uh, compartmentalizing and understanding what Jesus was doing. So when he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, it's not just, don't be sad when I die. Don't be sad because of the pain that you see me going through. He's saying, stand firm. Get ready because what is about to unfold, it's gonna seem like we lost, but we did not. As Gail says, it is a rallying cry for strength to his people. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not give up when it gets tough. Do not think that we have lost because we haven't be able to restructure and reorient your beliefs in light of certain failure or felt failure at least. What you think you know about the Messiah, it's wrong. This is the way that it's going and you need to stand firm. He goes on to give them some of the reasons as to why they should stand firm. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places, he says. Now, if we just think about this for a second, ask yourself, where's his father's house? Any thoughts? Thank you, Marie. Uh, For some of us, we might think that father's house is up there in the heavens somewhere, and you're not alone in that thought. However, there's also some imagery, uh, even in the Gospel of John, that the father's house is somewhere else. Where? Where are we right now? What do we call that sometimes? The house of the Lord. Are you excited, saints, to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Let's get those hands up and start clapping. You've heard the worship band do that. Look how terribly off time I am with my skipping. I I can't do, I can't move and clap at the same time. In, In this time period, there was also some thoughts that the temple was the Father's house. Remember when uh, 13-year-old precocious Jesus had left the caravan, and then the parents come back. Sorry, they were too close to that that movement. Um, The parents come, and they find him, and they find him in the synagogues or in the temple, and he says, don't you know that I would be in my Father's house doing Dad's business? There was a link to the temple and the Father's house. Now, interestingly enough, now, I I, I should have prefaced this, guys. I should have prefaced this. I'm gonna start connecting a bunch of dots for you. This isn't normal Bible study type stuff, but if we're trying to understand the context of John, this is how we might want to think about that. In the Gospel of John, the temple or the Father's house, it also has links to the temple of Jesus' body. There's a scene early on when he goes into the temple courts and he sees the people that are changing the money and he is ticked. What's he start doing? Flipping over the tables. In one of the Gospels, he has a whip. 
I believe that he made, I think he just took some time and he went and made this whip somewhere off to the side, like, hold on, man. Making a whip. <laughs> Tables, yeah, you've turned my dad's house into a den of thieves. Check me on that. I, I think he was making the whip, I'm pretty sure, but I, I don't really remember. In the Gospel of John, this is in the beginning, this is in chapter two, and he's ticked about this, and he gets to the point where he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And nobody has any idea what he's talking about. But what is he talking about? He's not talking about the temple, the temple. He's talking about himself. And John gives us this description. He says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. In the temple of Jesus' body, just stick with me, this is weird. There are many dwelling places. There are many monai is the Greek word here. Now, interestingly enough, this word shows up in the Gospel of John one other time. And it says in John 14, uh, verse 27, I believe, 23 or 27, my mind's blanking a bit here, it says, those who love me will keep my word and my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our Monet, our dwelling place, where? With them. These people, they love me, they, my father will love them, will come to them, not after they die, not after I return, but will come to them here and now and we will make our dwelling place, our monane, same word, with them, here and now. We don't ever think about John 14, 23 or 27, I forget which one, as a flying off into the heavenlies sort of context because what is being said here is, I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna be with you and you, perhaps you've heard this imagery, and you will be my temple. I will be in you. I will be part of this with you, not later, but now. Jesus is seemingly uh, allowing some of this to, to make sense. In the temple of Jesus' body, my father's house, which could also be understood as the temple, and Jesus brings that analogy to himself, there are many dwelling places, and I, I, I don't just have them out in the future for you, but I will bring them here and now. We will come to those people, to the ones who love me and the ones who keep my word, and we will make our dwelling place with them here and now, this is the important part. It's not just out there somewhere 2,000 years from now, perhaps, when you're long dead and when Jesus decides to return. This is a different image that's being painted. He says, if it were not so, I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, I have one leading question here about this line here. What is Jesus preparing to do over the next little bit of time in the Gospel of John? Yes. <laughs> He's preparing to be killed. And this is important, right? This is important for us because we believe that through Jesus' death, things happen. We believe through Jesus' death and his resurrection, lots of things happen. Jesus sets the world to rights, as N.T. Wright would say, that things take place. This is the gospel hope that we have, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that he's restoring all things to the Father. 
that through his perfect act of submission and sacrifice that we are allowed to receive forgiveness of sins. This is the work that Jesus is preparing to do in his immediate context. If it wasn't true, then would I, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare this place for you? Would, would I have told you and I, would I have announced to you time and time and time again that I will die and that it will have some meaning for you, not way down the road, but right here and right now. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. When we hear this phrase, I will come again, what do we immediately think? I'm gonna leave some of that theological putting in off to the side. Uh, Not everyone would hold to a rapture position where Jesus floats down from the heavens and the saints go up and then all hell breaks loose for seven years. That's pretty literal. That's a Jerry B. Jenkins and Tim LaHaye uh, left behind. If you want to see what that looks like, read those books. Uh, But don't, don't, yeah, don't, don't do that. Um, But yes, the second coming, Jesus's return at some point down the line, What else might he be referring to, though, for his disciples in this moment? Post-resurrection, right? He doesn't just say, I'm going to come again way down the line. In fact, one scholar would say that when it talks about Jesus coming or coming again, that it's never referring to what we would call as the second coming of Jesus. So he's saying, I will come again and I will take you to myself. In the story, when does this happen? This happens pretty, pretty soon. And in the story, what is he coming to do? Now, this might be different. When Jesus comes back to his disciples, what is he preparing for? What is he about to dispense? What is he about to give to his followers that changes everything? What do we receive? I heard it, the Holy Spirit over here. And in John 14, the same chapter that we're doing our work in, this is what Jesus is talking about. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. This is in verse 15. And it says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. That's the spirit. He even says, this is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Jesus says, it's better for you guys that I'm out of here because when I go, you can have the spirit. Jesus is preparing to show up to his disciples in the immediate future and to dispense upon them the spirit so that the spirit of the living Christ will be in them. It says Jesus' coming in this context can represent only his post-resurrection coming to impart to them the spirit and the dwelling places in the Father's presence can refer only to God dwelling in his believers. The emphasis of this passage is clearly realized. It's happening now. When Jesus is talking in John 14 to his disciples, he's saying, hold on just a few more days. Hold on just a little bit longer. This is gonna be so good for you guys. You, you don't have a real concept of what's gonna happen here, but I'm preparing something massive, not only for you, but for all these people. Everything will change. The temple that's out there somewhere, it will be in you. You will be a part of this movement. You will not be separated from me. I will be present with you for all time. Read this again. Jesus' coming in this context can represent 
only a few days later when he shows up to his people to impart to them the spirit and the dwelling places, the things that Jesus is preparing to give to his people, the mansions in the sky in the Father's presence, according to Craig Keener, can refer only to God dwelling in his believers now. If the hope that you have is that one day you will fly off into the heavens and you'll have a sweet mansion and hopefully you've done a hundredfold of those good works because then you get to live in the heavens and a sixtyfold in the paradise and then the thirtyfold you get in the city and then if the fivefold you're, you're in the, the food truck. You're still in but you're, you're doing hard work. He's saying that it may be in this passage, it's more about what's happening now. And as with any good talk, it should culminate with a, okay, great, who cares, so what? And all my teachers in the room say, yeah, that's where we need to go. I want to propose to you, this one's gonna hurt, it's gonna, it's gonna sting a bit. Jude, uh, my youngest, if he wants to communicate something that's not happening, he goes, Arnt. I'll say, hey, Jude, can you go brush your teeth? Arnt. Hey, Jude, would you like to eat this fruit? Arnt. So hold, Arnt. you know, like we have, this, we have this theologically astute vision that has been granted to the world through the magic of the internets, through its website, Pinterest, and Jude says, Jude doesn't. I do, though. <laughs> In this passage, not what Jesus is talking about. Now think about this for a second. Oh, God, wrap this up. Land in this plane. You guys are dealing with a lot of stuff. Health issues, relationship issues, money issues, traumatic events issues. A, a restlessness that you don't know where you're going issues. I don't want to take the hope of heaven away from you. But I want us to see that in this passage, what Jesus seems to be offering is better than this. It means something now. So when Jesus is saying, I, I'm preparing something for you, it's not somewhere out there. It's not something that you have to wait to experience. It's in you. It's with you. It's the living Christ indwelling in you. His spirit being a part of you. you. You don't have to wait for anything. All of, I'm gonna use some words here and I'd like to maybe pause and think through them at a later date. <laughs> but all of the power, all of the reconciliation and redemption, all of the forgiveness, all of the peace, all of the, all of the stuff it's residing in you in this very moment. I know it's cool when you're at a funeral and we can talk about Jesus preparing a place and there's these mansions and we can get all wispy thinking about what's going to happen. 
But don't ever forget what's happening now in you in this very moment. In the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of the stuff that you're going through, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the doubt, perhaps, remember and hold on to the simple, beautiful truth that Christ dwells in you, that you are the temple, that you are in union with God. If that does not excite us and put us on a new path, I don't have much else to offer you. I'm hopeful that whatever it is that you're dealing with, you might be able to glimpse a bit, not just of the future, but that beautiful realized eschatology where Jesus says, I got something for you and it's good. Believe in me, trust in me, and you will be able to receive the things that I have prepared for you that begin right here and right now.